Welcome to Light Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And if you'd like to be part of my Light Warrior Network tribe, you can find us on Facebook. Just type in Light Warrior Network. And every week we do prayer healings for everyone. And also you can get a free gift um, as part of being my tribe the Clearing and Protection Spray Formula, and the first six chapters of my Guide to Healing Chronic Pain book, as well as some classes on how to do muscle testing and a bit about detoxification and how to envision your future. So all those are free for you at lightwarriorsupport.com. All right, so today we are going to be talking about a seemingly somber subject, which is loss. But uh, don't run away yet, uh, because so many people are going through losses in their life of all types, uh, business losses, um, you know, financial losses, uh, relationship uh, losses, uh, you know, deaths in the family. I mean, all sorts of things happening. It's not like it hasn't happened in the past, but certainly with the the perception of time speeding up, it seems to be greater and it seems to sometimes be more profound. And so this is a perfect opportunity uh, for the interview today because my guest, Sherry Cormier, Dr. Sherry Cormier, uh, who is the author of Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief, is going to share with us not only her own personal journey of loss, but how to transform that loss to be part of your wholeness, part of who you are, part of that growth. Uh, And I know it's a tough sell. Sometimes we just don't want losses to happen. We we as humans um, kind of resist it, but I think it's super important to be able to understand how we can transform and transmute uh, losses into something that we gain. And so I won't um, go into more detail about uh, that until we uh, uh, introduce uh, Dr. Cormier. So if you are wanting to speak to Dr. Cormier on the show today, you can call in live at 818-514-1190. Hit 1 so we know your hand's up. This is an hour-long show, so um, we're going to be opening the phone lines a little earlier. So 818-514-1190. And uh, also, if you're online, you can go to the chat, and uh, I've opened up the chat, and you can put any questions or comments there in the chat as well as we go along. Um, and uh, I, and if you're, if uh, Sherry, if you're on the call, if you could hit one on your dial pad. So I know who, which number is yours. That would be really helpful. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so folks that are calling in, 818-514-1190, we'll be opening the phone on later. So if you have a, uh, you know, if you have a question for Dr. Cormier, uh, this is a great opportunity to get some mini coaching. All right, without further ado, welcome. Hi, Jerry. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm really delighted to be here, and even though it is a sombering subject, uh, listening to you and your introduction, the fact is that loss is a universal human experience, and sooner or later, it happens to all of us. And the question then is, are we ready? And how do yeah, we get exactly. ready? And and Right. And I know you're a great so, expert as well as a psychologist, and um, mm-hmm. in your book you offer uh, many effective tools for healing, and you, of course, know from your own experience you know, that they work, so maybe we should start with that. Um, just, you know, how did you get into this field? <laughs> right. Well, I, 
I got into it as a reluctant warrior or warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was sort of chuckling when I, again, listening to your introduction and you're saying, you know, loss comes to all of us eventually, which it does, but we don't usually want it to. And so about 10 years ago, I was just plugging along happily, merrily, like like a lot of people, and uh Kind of all of a sudden, my father and my beloved husband died within three months of of each other. Oh, my God. And, of course, my father was older, and he was my father, so it was hard but not unexpected. My husband had always been healthy, never had been to the doctor, and then all of a sudden, one day, basically kind of got, got got diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he died six months later. And so mm. that was a huge wake-up call for me, Karen. And then, you know, several years after that, I lost my mom. And then a couple years after that, I lost my rescue golden retriever dog, Abby. Mm. And then two years ago, my only sibling and sister died. So it's almost as if in the last decade, the universe handed me a lot of loss on a platter, and it was very humbling because I've been a psychologist for many years, and I've worked with a lot of people with loss, but I found out that, oh boy, when it happens to you, it's a mm. whole different ball game. It's a whole different mm. uh, ball of wax, as they say, and it was very humbling and I found that some of the things that I recommended to other people as tools, I didn't think were actually all that effective. And some things that oh, no. I hadn't <laughs> recommended to people were. <laughs> so it's really been a decade of exploration and lots of growth for me personally. I've done a lot of inner work. Uh, of course, I still work with people with bereavement issues. I'm a bereavement trauma specialist now. But I I think I work at a much deeper level, and I have a much more radical understanding of what it really means. And, again, it doesn't – you said this, too. It's not just loss of a person. You know, you could lose your home due to a wildfire or a storm, or you could lose your, your job, or you could lo- lose a beloved relationship to divorce, or, you know, there's so many ways that loss – shows up for us i think of people who lose their health you know you're a you're a medical acupuncturist and i know you see people all the time that come in that have been plugging along and then they they get chronic mm-hmm. pain for example and um that's a loss because it means that life can no longer continue for you the way that it's been going, that something is shifting. And many of us don't like change. And so I think one of the reasons that loss is so difficult, at least initially for us to handle, is that it, it does present opportunities for growth. It also means that we're in the midst of impermanence and we're in the midst of shifts. And we're going, oh, no, oh, no, I'd rather be stagnant. I'd rather have my chi be stagnant than move through my body at a fast pace. Right, exactly. But, you know, it's, it's, right, it's very hard. It's very hard to, 
you know, get out of our patterns and things we're used to and our routines and and that's what that's the gift of loss and it's also the challenge of loss. Mm. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so so true. Well, I'm very curious to know what are the things, if you don't mind sharing, that you mm-hmm. used to recommend before your own personal, you know, <laughs> experiences. <laughs> before I found out it wasn't work. so hard. Well, yeah, curious. you know, the truth is that I'm, I've always been a more of a cognitive therapist, which is ah, okay. very big in you know it's a it's an evidence-based approach to therapy and i'm not i'm not saying not to use it you know it's a it's a great approach it is used for so many things so many anxiety it's wonderful for anxiety it's wonderful for depression um i tried to use it when i was really bereaved and grief-stricken and heartbroken and i tried to think my way out of bereavement and I just couldn't do it. And so I found that the more cognitive approaches for especially initially when you're highly bereaved, when you're really in the grips of heartbreaking grief, probably the cognitive approaches at that moment in time are not as useful as they will be down the road. Like I think when someone shifts and they're, you know, they're sort of starting to accept the loss and then to deal with it, then you can bring the cognitive work back in. I really feel that initially, you know, the the major task initially when you get hit with a loss is acceptance, working on acceptance, being working on willingness because we do tend to resist change yeah. and we tend to resist having loss handed to us. Most of us don't choose loss. I mean, there are voluntary losses. Some of us do choose to change jobs or change a relationship or change houses. Even with voluntary losses, there's still a lot of uh, stress involved, a lot of change involved. But for me, and for what I recommend for people, you know, the body and the mind are so connected. Um, right. And so I did a lot of acupuncture. Interestingly, my youngest daughter has now become an acupuncturist. Oh, no way. And I think it's, yeah, yeah. And I think it's because she saw me doing so much work with acupuncture around the time that 10 years ago when I lost my husband and you know, she saw how effective it was for my own grief. And, you know, I've just recommended a lot of complementary approaches, acupuncture. I think cranial sacral therapy and Reiki therapy are very useful because they really put the body in a in a state of relaxation. Of course, acupuncture moves the chi around your body. And, you know, we don't want – we grief is a heavy emotion, and we yeah. really need people to process it and we don't we don't want it to for example from a chinese medicine standpoint we don't want it to stay stuck in the lungs so all of those things we we can't just think our way out of grief we have to give our body support and even just simple self-care things like getting out and walking uh doing some 
you know, muscle resistance training, strengthening your muscles, doing dance, anything like that that moves your body. Qigong, of course, is Qigong and Tai Chi are two of my favorites because they move Mm. energy so fluently through the body. So moving your body is key because if we don't move our body in some way, then our energy gets stuck and we kind of wallow in our grief and we, we, it's, you know, we don't have more trouble processing it, processing the emotion of the grief. And also, you know, moving our body helps us sleep better. We tend to choose better foods to eat. So just simple things like moving the body, exercise, choosing really healthy, nourishing foods, following, you know, the Mediterranean diet has so much research evidence now for so many conditions. Oh, you mean not the two pints of ice cream? <laughs> not the two points of not the two pints of you know but you know you oh that's a great great comment because what is it we go after when we feel bad we go after <laughs> sugar right and carbs yeah we think that's the way to feel better and you know momentarily that two pints of ice cream might give us a little quick rush or that candy bar or you know that um margarita or the bag of potato Mm. chips, a momentary sort of feel-better experience. But over the long run, what, what has been found is, you know, if we keep putting those kinds of foods in our body, we don't move our body and we don't sleep well, that actually sabotages our healing because it actually intensifies the emotional experience that we're having. So if we're in a sort of a bad mood place and we're eating a lot of junk food and we're sitting a lot and we're being sedentary and we're having trouble with insomnia, and you know acupuncture is great for insomnia, we're having all those things, those things actually make um, difficult emotions stronger and more intense. They make sadness more intense. They make anger more intense. They make all of those things that you're sort of wanting to move through and process. They make them just, they make, you know, you feel them more intensely. And I think it's more of a struggle to, it's really more of a struggle than to heal. So body things you can do and self-care things, those are so, so, so important, especially at the beginning of of oh, bereavement a journey. Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think about uh you know that that connection at the beginning, but you're absolutely right that that you know that place where people unfortunately other people trying to help, you know, say things yeah. like, "Oh, get over it" or, you know, "You'll mm-hmm. be better when" or "It'll be fine" or you know, we don't want to hear those things initially. Um we it, really don't, I don't know if we ever want to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I used to get so, i, I got to be honest, uh, Sherry, I, I used to get so pissed off, like literally pissed off when somebody would say to me, it'll all work out. And I'd be like, I, I didn't swear back then, but I'd be like, in my mind, like, F you, it's going to work right, out. Right, right, you were swearing in your mind. work out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know what, don't give me that, you know, whatever. Anyway, but it's funny because it, it's actually true, but we don't want to hear that when we're in that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of of loss and uh, like you yeah. said 
that that stagnant, you know, chi being able to be moved by movement. I think that's that's really a great piece of advice because I have had, I mean, not, they were not were patients, but like friends of friends and family members of friends, you know, where you know somebody dies, and then sure enough, you know, that the the wife or the husband or child or whatever gets pneumonia or gets a lung tumor even in one case. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is unresolved grief. You know, it wasn't my role to, like, yes. step in, but uh wasn't my client or patient. But I was like, oh, man, if they only knew. Mm-hmm. I know. I I know someone uh, sort of well who who had a, a very – who lost a child and then was unable to process his grief and ended up with lung cancer. So. Yeah. Yes, it's it's we really do need to process our grief. And the good news actually is that about 90% of people with a significant loss eventually do heal and move through grief. Not to say that they ever I I don't want to leave the impression with your listeners that you ever get over grief or you ever get over a loss and or you move on that's really not the goal of of healing from loss and grief the goal is to integrate the grief mm-hmm. and integrate the loss into your life and learn how to live with it so that you can move forward and it doesn't incapacitate you but it doesn't mean that you know you forget about it or anything like that but really i think um just just learning to live with it and learning you know how how can i go on and 90% of us do there are about 10% of people Karen that really cannot learn how to integrate this and stay stuck in the sort of initial deep throes of bereavement and in that intense bereavement place and they have they eventually develop what we call in the bereavement field prolonged grief or sometimes it's referred to as complicated grief and there's actually a psychiatrist at new, in New York City at Columbia Dr. Kathleen Shear who's done a lot of work in the area of prolonged and complicated grief and for these 10% of people that they really do require professional, professional help to really, um, you know, be able to move through that. So we're talking about, you know, if if you feel like you're in that 10% and maybe you had a loss four or five years ago and you don't, you don't feel like you've done any healing, then I would suggest you get online and look for a practitioner in your locale who is experienced in handling prolonged or complicated grief and, you know, go in and work with them, you know, maybe for six months or a year because um, that's just what it takes. But really 90% of us do grow, and that's sort of an interesting phenomenon. I I love talking about this on, on radio shows because, you know, I this was sort of new to me, and this is something that I really, really work with people now. I'm doing a, a bereavement support group now with seniors, and this is something I'm really stressing to them. There's a whole new 
phenomenon out there now for bereavement and actually even for uh, survivors with post-traumatic stress syndrome. So it might just not even be people with loss. It might be people coming back from deployment, veterans, you know, with mm. PTSD, or it might be people who've been through a, a horrific hurricane or a California wildfire, and they've developed PTSD symptoms. And there's this relatively new phenomenon, but it has a lot of research uh, basis to it, a lot of empirical evidence now, called post-traumatic growth. So what we oh, know is, yeah, that you don't have to stay stuck, whether you're, you know, whether you've lost a loved one or, you know, you, let's say that you had an accident yourself and you became paralyzed as a result of that, or maybe you're a veteran, you don't have to stay stuck in post-traumatic stress. Um, and they, the research on this, what we found is that, of course, none of us who've had these significant experiences happen to us, none of us would have chosen to have the experience. So, again, I don't want to leave the impression like, oh, this is great, we would have loved to have you know, it's wonderful mm. I lost my spouse or that I have, I'm right, now right. paralyzed. <laughs> no, no, not that. But once we accept that this is our new reality, mm. we we find that many of us feel that even though it's been a very seismic event and even though it's been something very, very upsetting, that in fact it has changed us and in some ways, it has changed us for the better. And I mean, I can just tell you, you know, from my own experience, I'm just not the same person I was 10 years ago. I'm much more courageous. I'm much more assertive. I'm much stronger. You know, that, that old saying about if it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger. I think, you know, unfortunately, there is some truth to that. So what we're finding is that people have these seismic events. They create post-traumatic stress. Uh, it's something that's, and, and we're really talking about a seismic event. I'm not talking about, you know, the fact that you don't have your holiday shopping done or you're getting, you know, you're getting a cold or you're right, getting right. <laughs> unexpected company. Not something merely upsetting, but you have this seismic event that you weren't prepared for. And what we find is that it really violates our worldview. It violates our mm -hmm. assumptions about life as we knew it, but we grow, and it's not like the growth comes from having the event happen itself, like the growth doesn't come from being deployed or having the paralyzing accident or losing our beloved. The growth comes from our attempt to find meaning in what's happened to us. That's where the growth yeah. lies. That's where the opportunity for growth is for us, is in finding the meaning. What does this mean for me and for my life in moving forward? Timing is very important. This is not something that occurs early in bereavement. So, you know, right now in my group, I have people that lost their spouse six weeks ago, and I wouldn't 
begin to even introduce this concept to them because in the beginning you just need to move that grief through and get your chi moving and get your feet underneath your body and get regrounded. But several years down the line, several years into the bereavement process, once you have your equilibrium, then you can begin to start talking with people about post-traumatic growth. And really, what is, what, is, what is the significant or seismic event mean to you or mean to them? And, you know, for me, it's been a whole way of changing my thinking really about even about death and dying. Uh, so I've changed my beliefs around death and dying. You know, obviously, I'm sort of on this mission um, to sort of educate people about death and dying and what that means. And I really, I don't even talk about death as death now. I I call death a transition, and I think of it as a birth. You know, but it's sort of a birth you know, we know a lot more about birth than we know about death because we become into a physical body after birth, and everyone we know who's born gets into a physical body after birth. And death is a transition where we leave the physical body behind, and yet what we know from quantum physics and all kinds of new research coming out now is that there is a state of consciousness Karen, that still endures after the death of the physical body. And I talk about this a lot in Sweet Sorrow because about 50% of us who lose a beloved, have we get some kind of messages from the person that we lost. And I got messages from my beloved husband, Jay, in the form of visitation dreams. And in and, and these dreams, our deceased person, our person whose transition shows up, they're usually healthy again. They show up as a guide. They bring us messages. The dreams usually are a very comforting to us. And I'll just give you one little one little dream that I just love talking about. Two years after Jay died, uh, he came to me in a dream, and I said, honey, what's it like to die? And he said, just wait. It's genius. <laughs> it's genius. Well, so, I mean, there's great wow. promise and great mystery in that. I'm sort of excited. I mean, not that I'm ready to let go of my physical body yet, but I sort of think that when I am ready to transition that I'm going to be so fascinated to find out what the genius is in this transition where we leave our physical bodies and we, we know a part of our consciousness still endures and we can even contact our loved ones from that state of consciousness, even though they don't see us anymore in our physical body. So Ooh, it's really great. changed my whole views on death and dying. Most of us who um, report post-traumatic growth, Karen, we, we have some new relationship to some kind of spirituality in our life. 
We report new possibilities for ourselves. We find a deeper meaning of life. We feel a much greater appreciation for life because we recognize the fragility of life in the physical body. We report um, feeling stronger, increased you know, personal strength, and we also have better connections with other people. And that's really, really important because one of the things that I found in my own bereavement journey and I really, really stress in working with other people with any kind of loss, whether it's a financial loss or a job loss or a relationship loss, is we do not heal in isolation. And grief itself, bereavement and grief, are really sort of self-absorbing and very isolating experiences. And we've, we have found through research that one of the primary ways that we heal our bereavement and we heal grief is to, is to develop very strong connections with other people, to really find our tribe and to really be with that tribe. So that's really, really important. And finding ways to connect with people is is often one of the ways in which we really grow. Mm-hmm. I know oh, I've yeah. been talking I a lot. Agree. I've hardly given you any time to say anything, and I apologize for that. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Usually it's the other way around, and I have to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is perfect. Yeah, this is perfect. I think these are very, very salient and important points about that community. Uh, about you know, sometimes people don't reach out because they're really feeling kind of safe. You know, especially if you're a couple and you've a, a mm-hmm. you know, couple that gets along. You know, it's just you and so and so. And and you know, yes, you mm-hmm. may have friends here and there, but it's like you're a person can be totally dependent you know, mm-hmm. on that relationship, and when that relationship mm-hmm. is gone, then they're completely lost. And I know several people, friends, clients, patients, you know, um, you know, going through this, and um, maybe you can comment a little bit about, um, uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it, well, two things. Uh, the first we're going to talk about is, like, this whole, like, rebound relationship thing. Like, yes. some people are like, oh, so-and-so's <laughs> going through a rebound, you know, someone just died, and then within a year they're already with somebody, and they're controlling, yes. or they're not like this person. So any comments on that phenomenon? Yes, I'm smiling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm smiling as I as I listen to you. Well, I at the risk of generalizing, and I don't want to generalize, I, but but I will say this, I have found in my work with with bereavement survivors that tends to happen a little more frequently with men than women. And I think the reason for that is I think as women, we have been somewhat culturally conditioned to develop all along a, a better social network and circle of friendship than men. And I think men are more likely to be very focused on their partner and their work or their family and their work, period. And so I found that to be a little bit more true for men. Um, But I think it definitely happens. I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you realize that 
you know, you're searching for connection. You're, you, may, you may be doing it, though, out of a place of loneliness. And really, loneliness, the first step in healing loneliness is to learn to live alone. And I, you know, I, I'll just speak again from personal experience because I found that people really like it when I talk about what's happened to me personally and they find some comfort in it I couldn't I was sort of like one of those people that you mentioned I was very connected to my husband we were both very involved with our adult daughters and our uh, and our work so we we had friends but we only you know we spent limited amount of time with friends because we didn't have time and so right, for right. me right so for me I had to really start over, and I started over living in a in a different town than I live in now. And it was a small town, and at my age, I didn't know any widows my age. Finally, I met one widow. But I felt almost like I was in a minority status there because I just didn't know people. I didn't know single women to connect with. I since have moved to a more urban area, and there's you know, single women all around me. But I've lived alone now. My husband will be have been gone 11 years in January. I'm still living alone. I've lived alone for 11 years. And I n- couldn't even conceive of dating until about four years ago. So my husband was probably gone about, you know, seven years, six, seven years before I thought I might want to date and I did go online Uh, I've had a lot of dates I've had a couple of relationships I haven't met anybody that I thought I wanted to have a long-term relationship with over the long haul Um, and I think there are times when I do feel lonely but I think we get into rebound situations when we try to solve our grief and our bereavement and our loneliness by thinking that we're going to, you know, get into another partnership right away. And, you know, unfortunately, some people do that and they end up really making a commitment and then a year or so later they get they split and get a divorce if, if they've gotten actually remarried, I would say go really slowly in this department. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with having a rebound relationship, but just take it very slowly. Don't rush into anything. Get to know the person and get to know yourself as a single person and establish yourself with a new identity, being single. Learn to live with yourself Learn to solve your loneliness with yourself and be comfortable with yourself. And then I think you're more ready to really meet somebody and not have it be just one of these rebound things. Well, I, I had a rebound relationship, but it had to do with uh, figure skating because I was a Paris figure skater and my, my coach had left, uh, my young coach had left town and uh, I was in so much grief uh, because I loved it so much and I didn't have any skating partners and I thought, gee, it's easier to find a romantic partner than it is to find a figure skating partner, especially one that I wanted to fall in love with. So therefore, 
you know, couldn't be gay, although I have a lot of gay friends, but you know, that, you know, right. you know the, the dream uh, was, was gone. And so, yeah, what I kept doing was I kept filling the appointment schedule with uh, people that skated that I could try out with to see if I could reproduce mm-hmm. that feeling of that pair partnership. And I made a lot of mistakes. I got dropped on the floor, you know, I, yeah, too short, too, you know, too out of it, like whatever. Like I just, mm-hmm. finally, after several trials, I'm like, this is crazy. This is not working. Right. Me trying to fill this mm-hmm. void. I'm just going to sit in the void. What the heck, you know? And that's, and that's when the magic happens. And that's so important happens. to do. Sit in the void. Uh, there's a phrase um, called staying in the gap. And it's sort of the same thing, like sometimes you just have to, that's part of, I think, developing acceptance and also developing resilience. Just sit Mm. with what is. And, you know, you use the word, well, I, I was trying to fill the void. I was trying to recreate the feelings I had that I'd lost. And, you know, that never happens. I mean, I'll never be able to find I'll never be able to recreate the marriage that I had with Jay with anyone new. And for people who lose a child, you know, having another child is not a solution to the the grief that they feel over the child they lost because you can't ever replace a person. You just have to sit with the grief and heal and then... You know, you know, you know that you're going to have another child, and that relationship and child will be different. And I'm sure you found, you know, after you sat in the void, uh, that you moved moved forward in a way, but it wasn't the same. It was different. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was in my case better. <laughs> And better. I mean, better than what I experienced. Yeah, yeah. And and it, when I let go of that having to fill the void myself and just, just mm-hmm. allowing myself to feel that, you know, loneliness, sadness, whatever, and just, mm-hmm. you know, just knowing that whatever I was trying was in my, in my human capacity was not working, that's when not that long afterwards I met my current husband, James, who was not a figure skater but was an incredible athlete. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that it's like a fairy tale story after that. So. Um, really <laughs> amazing how these, how these, and then so much spiritual growth, you know, coming out of that. Yeah, you're absolutely right about yeah, the spiritual growth. And you've said, you know, Karen, you've said so many key things. Like one is just not forcing change. Like not, you can't force growth. You can't push yourself to grow when you're before you're ready. And then letting go. Like when you let go of, oh, I've got to recreate this or I have to replace this. When you can let go of expectations, and, you know, the great Anne Lamott said, and I love this quote, expectations are resentments under construction. (laughs) That's Anne Lamott. Oh, I love that. Isn't that wonderful? Expectations are resentments under construction. That's an Anne Lamott quote. And I I have all her books. She's one of my favorite authors. Oh. But when we can let go of, you know, our our belief system and our thoughts and our expectations for, oh, I've got to have this right now and I need to find another 
hair to skate with or in my case I you know or some you know we've got to find another spouse right now or have another child or another friend or the best job you know when we can just accept that we're in the stew we're in the middle of the stew and even accept everything that comes with it we feel sad and a lot of us want to push that away but sadness is a part of life just like joy is. And sadness is really the other side of joy. So in some ways when we block sadness and don't move move that en- through that energy of sadness, we're also blocking potential joy and happiness. So feeling the feelings and sitting with it, letting go of all these expectations and all these kind of crazy beliefs about what we think is what's next. And, you know, often what's next, you're right, it will show up for us and it will show up bigger or better or different in a really wonderfully surprising way that we couldn't have even anticipated. Mm-hmm. So letting go is That's huge. It's so hard to let go, but it's so important. Yeah, and I love what you said about not forcing yourself yeah. because sometimes other people's expectations are like, oh, I should mm-hmm. be over this by now. I should be this. Mm-hmm. I should be that. So we end up shooting ourselves and feeling mm-hmm. even more terrible about ourselves while we're trying to push away the grief. <laughs> so. You know, and you've said this a couple times, and I think I do want to really comment on this because it, every, if loss isn't happening to us, Karen, it's happening to someone we know. I mean, right now I can go on every digit of both hands, ten fingers, and probably ten toes too, and talk about some people I know, 20 people that are in the middle of heartbreaking loss right now. And everyone, all of us know someone like that. And I I think this idea of how do we helpfully respond to our friends and family who are in the middle of some kind of challenging loss. And there are more helpful and less helpful ways to respond. And I think we live in sort of in the United States, it seems to me that we're in a really grief-phobic society. I'll never forget I worked with a – we're grief-phobic. We don't want to talk about grief. We don't want to be around it. And we don't want to show up. For our friends and family, you know, I, I just had someone tell me recently they, they lost their spouse not too long ago, and they went to an event, and there were people there who did not know her spouse had just died, and when they found out, they they kind of all ran away. They didn't, you know, and oh, that's no. so painful. That's so oh, painful no. for the bereaved. But we we don't, you know, the truth is we don't. Many of us just don't want to hang around grieving people because it stirs up our own discomfort about what would happen to us if we started grieving and if we had got a terrible loss. And so we think we'll just stay away. So we tend to avoid people who are in the middle of heartbreaking (laughs) loss, and yet we really need to just... just, It's so true. Isn't it true? And then if we don't, and so we tend to avoid them to begin with. If we don't avoid them, then our next step is to try to fix them. Well, just, just do this. Just do that. 
take this pill. You'll feel better, Wes. Right. You'll feel better. Or you mentioned earlier, we say something that really feels offensive to them, like, well, there's got to be a reason for this. Or, you know, in this was part of uh, God's plan or all of those things that are really, really quite I've offensive things. <laughs> yeah. So what do we do instead? Well, I say just acknowledge. If Show up first. Show up and yeah. acknowledge. And if you don't know what to say, you know what? Say that. Just say, I heard your husband just died. I didn't know. I was really sorry to hear that. I'm not sure if there's anything that I can say that would be helpful, but I just want you to know that I'm here if you need me. And then ask them what yeah. they need. Yeah. Ask. Like, you don't even have to assume that they need a casserole or more flowers that are going to mm. die or food that is going to go you know, bad and they're going to have to throw out, just say, you know, I'm, I imagine this is a hard time for you and I bet there might be some ways I could help. What do you need? And just, yeah, you know, and they that. might say, gosh, could you take the dog for a walk? Or I really need that suit from the dry cleaners to wear to the memorial service. I mean, things that would never occur to us. So what do you need? And then, Really, I really like to stress, don't treat a bereaved person like a hit-and-run accident. A lot of us will sort of show up initially and we'll drop off a plant or some food and we'll express condolences. And then, again, because of our own discomfort, we stay away. We avoid, and then they don't hear from us for a year. We really need, you know, we really need to be present for bereaved people for the long haul because, to use a sports analogy, grief is not um, a little sprint. It's a marathon. You know, going through bereavement is a marathon. And Mm -hmm. so it takes people several years to heal. The first year is so hard, and there's all these triggers. Like, you know, it's the holidays now. And the holidays for very bereaved people are one of the hardest times of the year. People yes. around us are happy. People expect us to be celebrating. We don't feel like celebrating if we've just, we're going through a hard loss now. We feel sad. We feel downtrodden. We don't feel like we're not jovial. We don't want to laugh. Not that we can't take breaks from grief. I think that's a good thing to do. But by and large, there's such a cognitive dissonance between what how we're expected to feel at the holidays and how we're really feeling. And there's so many things that maybe we've done that we just we may not have the money to do them this year if we're facing a financial loss or we've lost a home, if if we've lost a beloved, we don't have the will or the inclination to do them. So showing up for people around holidays is very important, around trigger times like birthdays or the anniversary of the loss, and just, you know, kind of checking in with people for really the first 
maybe two years after a significant loss is so important. Um, I know someone going through a significant life change right now, and it involves a loss and it also involves a gain. And, you know, I've been so impressed because this person has a friend that just checks in with her every week. How are you? Is there anything you need? Wow. I love that. You know, just checking in with somebody. And, you know, if we need something, we can say yes. And if not, we can say, you know, I'm good this week. Thanks for checking in. I'll I'll let you know when something comes up I need. But mm. just checking in with people. That is great. I, I'm definitely not very good at that because I get so busy. Doing, but it doesn't mean I don't think of that person. That's my way of checking in uh, is mm-hmm. energetically thinking of that person. And, and I do, too. I do that, too, because uh, I'm, I'm a Reiki master, too, and I'm always sending Reiki long distance to Reiki to people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, that's a great thing to do. And we all need we all need everyone to do as much energetic um, check-ins, too, as we can. But, you know, when it's someone maybe really close to us, checking in with them by phone or even just a little text message, just, you know, thinking of you, face, smiley face, let me know if Mm -hmm. you need anything, just helps to know that we're in people's conscious awareness and recognizing, you know, maybe especially reaching out at the holidays because they just don't often feel like holidays. And I even say to people, like, for example, if, you know, you are a mother and you've lost a child, Mother's Day, or you're a father, Mother's and Father's Day are going to be painful days for you. And so really keeping in our consciousness and our awareness that just because a day feels happy and celebratory to us doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that it's that way for the rest of the world. So for people who've lost children, mothers and in the Mother's Day and Father's Day in this country, those are usually very gut-wrenching, emotionally painful days for people who've lost children. So just kind of keeping all that in our awareness is, and then that, that helps us respond sensitively rather than offensively. Yeah, those are great advice. Great, great advice. Um, So, you know, in the time we have, I wanted to make sure people knew how to get a copy of your book and also how to connect with you. And then I'd like you to comment a little bit about what we medical students learned in school, which was the Kubler-Ross model of you know, grief. So let's the Kubler Ross you know, stage model. Can... Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. let me talk about that Kubler Ross stage model first, and oh, then okay. I'll I'll end with you know the the contact info. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I sort of hope they're not still teaching that in medical school. But it wouldn't be surprising. I don't to know me if they if are. They it's been be. a long time. <laughs> um, <laughs> because first of all, Elizabeth Kubler Ross did not develop her stages of of grief or loss model for grief survivors, like people who were in, going through a loss. She developed it for people who were dying. So she really didn't intend it to be used, like, oh, you've lost, you're going through this loss, now you're going to experience these five stages. 
And what we found is that we don't really heal from loss and grief following that linear stage path. So we don't, in the in the bereavement work that we do now in psychology, we don't do a lot of work with that with stages anymore. We we talk about grief being more cyclical than linear, and by that, what I'd like your listeners to think about, or is picture the ocean, um, or if you know what tides are, if you've ever been to an ocean, and you can get a little bit of this on bays. The tides come in and the tides go out and there are waves. And that's sort of a cyclical rhythm in nature. Um, Even the seasons are cyclical. You know, the leaves have been dropping, the trees are bare, we're moving into winter soon. And then in the spring we get leaf buds and then we get leaves on the tree. That's like grief. That We go through these cycles of grief where grief will be more intense and feel like a tsunami wave and then at other times it will be less intense and feel like a very uh little wave that that you can you know barely get a jump on so grief tends to be more uh like that and healing from grief is much more cyclical than linear so the the stage model has sort of fallen fallen out of favor I guess is the best way to say it and if you think that you're going to go through certain stages not to say that you might not feel guilty or you might not feel sad or angry you probably will have all those emotions during bereavement but it's not that you go through these linear stages like a stepping stone it just doesn't work that way does that answer that Oh, yeah, that that was great. I think that's a very okay. good point because people sometimes feel guilty when they're like, gee, I mm-hmm. should be at the acceptance stage already. It's year three you know, or whatever. <laughs> right. And then they, although they're, they're right. and then they well feel here, like there's something wrong up. with them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, Which, it's you know, we, you don't like need that, that either, so right? You're already feeling yeah. badly, so you don't need to heap self-shame on top of how yeah. awful you're feeling. So. Right. Now, in terms exactly. of how you can find Sweet Sorrow and you can connect with me, um, my book is Sweet Sorrow. It's available uh, online easily, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. I will tell you right now that actually Amazon is promoting it and there's a 10% off coupon, so it makes I a great holiday that. gift. Yeah. So, yeah, cool. Um, yeah. And I have a website, www.sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Cormier, C-O-R-M-I-E-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-R.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, Sherry Cormier at Sweet Sorrow Book. So feel free to reach out to me those ways, and I'd love to connect with your listeners. And I, it's been great to be with you and your listeners this hour, and what a great service you're doing with your Light Warriors radio show and blog radio talk. And um, I so appreciate being on this show. 
Oh, it's been wonderful having you, Dr. Sherry. And uh, what I what I really love too is that um, you know some of the grief books uh, in the past that I've you know read or even recommended uh, to patients don't often talk about that part where you talked about earlier about you know those those little hints and synchronicities and the you know the the spirit ones you know giving you um, you know hints or 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 you know, conversations through dreams uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of people are scared to or don't have any experience talking about right. that place, so they almost write it as if it's, oh, you might see something, and you know, or you mm-hmm. might notice this, and that's about it, like, mm-hmm. that that's all they say, mm-hmm. whereas you kind of are a little bit more, you know, going into that place where my light warriors are more used to and wanting to understand, like, you know, their, their tribe members of, of, you know, people that could be specialists like you, going, yes, I'm not crazy, you know, like, oh, yes, no, I'm, it's, I'm it's, sure a, I'm it's an absolute metaphysical experience, and I, yeah. one of the longest chapters in Sweet Sorrow called Manifestations of the Soul is about that entire journey, mm. so, yeah, I, it is a very unique part, I think, of the book, it's, was such an important part of my own healing that I absolutely felt like it. It's such an important part of my story. It had to be included in the book. Oh, okay. But I'm glad that it, I'm glad that you know that sticks out to you too, and is a is a highlight for you. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it you is. know when you're doing all this healing energy and energetic energy, you know we we realize that we sort of go into 5D and think about the limitlessness of the universe and all mm-hmm. of these connections. And mm-hmm. so. Well, I think it was really important for our Light Warriors to hear from you today. So, again, thank you so much, Dr. Sherry, for your work, your book, and who you are and what you do. Amazing. Thank you, Dr. Karen, for having me on the show. And the the best and most peaceful holidays to all of you. Yes, thank you so much. Bye, Dr. Sherry. Bye, everyone, for listening in. Until next time, lots of love.